Our New Testaments are full of instances in which Jesus unequivocally declares himself to be the Lord of all creation. I am that I am is here. The great I am is here. So a prominent Old Testament theme is God putting the water under his feet, walking on the water. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. Have you ever thought that if Jesus' mission was to rescue his disciples, he could have gotten there a whole lot better than that? I mean, what the whole walking on water thing? Did he have to climb up the waves and go down the other side? I mean, surely it was tedious because they're three or four miles out. If Jesus just wanted to get to them, to rescue them, there was a whole lot better ways to do that. Jesus is intentionally walking on the water because the 12 Jewish Jewish people in the boat, the 12 Jewish men in the boat are going to immediately recognize, wait a minute, our scriptures talked over and over about God treading on water. But then this enigmatic phrase, he meant to pass them by. So when we think about these theophanies, these revelations, these appearances of God in the Old Testament, One of the phrases that seems to be a common phrase that is oft repeated is this phrase, God passed them by. And when God uses that phrase, he's not saying that he was on his way and he saw them over there, hey, and he kept on going. It's speaking of God revealing himself. And God is pleased to use the words or to use the phrase, Pass them by. Take a look with me at one of the most well-known of these theophanies. This is Exodus chapter 33. In the context of Exodus chapter 33, Moses has headed up to here with the belligerent, disobedient, non-believing people. And he has just headed. And they won't believe, they won't trust, but then there's this whole going into the promised land to fight for the land. They don't want to do that. And God's saying, well, since they're just so unbelieving, I'm not going to go with them. And they sort of go back and forth and back and forth. And all it all ends up with Moses pleading with God, God, just show me your glory. I just want to see your glory. I just want to see you. And then God indulges Moses this way. Verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. Verse 19, he said, this is God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. And I will cover you with my hand until the third time I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Three times. God says, I will show you my glory. I will pass by. 
Another instance in which we see the same sort of thing, this is also a well-known instance. This takes place in 1 Kings 19. We are familiar with the story when Elijah has been run out of town or he's fearfully fled from Jezebel who now says she's going to kill him. And he winds up in the desolate place, in the desert. And then there's that whole time there where Elijah is really just at the end of his rope, but then God comes to him. So look, we'll pick up the story from verse, from 1 Kings chapter 19. And he said, speaking, um, uh, God speaking here, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, and we know how the story goes, there's the earthquake, there's, then there's, it all ends with the, with the small voice. But do you see how all of that takes place in the context of God saying, the Lord passed by and Elijah saw. Let's look at one more, Job chapter 9. What's happening in Job chapter 9 is that there's this big contention thing, this, this contentiousness between Job and the Lord because Job has just had his whole life jerked out from under him and he's asking the question, why? What did I do? I have not sinned. And throughout all of that, Job is, is going back and forth and, and there's, there's certainly, if Job is anything, the book of Job is anything, it's a volume of words. There's a lot of words. There's a lot of dialogue. And Job is just going on and on about how I can't seem to just present my case before the Lord. I can't come face to face with Him. If I could just come face to face with Him, I would present my case before Him. And he goes on about how nobody can see Him. He is wise in heart, mighty in strength, who's hardened Himself against Him and who has succeeded. He removes mountains, etc., etc. But his whole point is, I can't seem to see Him. But then verse 10, He does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, He passes by me and I see Him not. But I do not perceive Him. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. You see there? So we see this pattern in which God just seems to prefer this phrase to describe the revealing of his glory. He passed by. Why? What does that mean that he passed by? I don't know. We're never told. We just know that's a phrase that God prefers when in the context of, listen closely, one of his people needing to see him and God desiring to show himself. And he will oftentimes use this phrase, pass by. Now Jesus, who supernaturally saw them from miles away and has tread the water underfoot, we are told that his purpose was to pass them by. It has nothing to do with Jesus walking past the boat and beating them to the other side. It has nothing to do with Jesus trying to evoke some sort of response from the disciples. It has everything to do with the first theophany in Mark's gospel. The first instance of Jesus saying, I will reveal to you my glory. I will reveal to you who I am. 
I will show you in a special way for a special occasion, for a special purpose. I will show you my glory. I will pass by you. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. You know, there is a lot of superstition in the New Testament. You ever noticed how much superstition is in the, in the New Testament? We just experienced some superstition, didn't we? With Herod thinking that Jesus was John the baptizer come back from the dead. We're going to experience more. If you read through the book of Acts, the book of Acts is full of people's superstitious beliefs. So they have this superstition. We'll return here next week, by the way. But they have this superstitious belief that Jesus is a ghost, some sort of apparition. The word there is phantasma. And you can hear that's where we get our word phantom from. So they, they fear that he is some sort of phantom, some sort of ghost, some sort of living but not living thing, some sort of thing that was living and come back. Or sometimes phantasma can mean demon. There was a strong superstition in Jesus' day that the demons were the source of storms on the sea. And so when there was a storm on the sea, people believed that it was a demon stirring up the sea. And so perhaps that is, has a connection here. Perhaps they're, they're fearful that it was, a, it was some sort of a demonic thing or they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. The same word there, literally screamed. It's the same word that's used to describe what the demons do when they come into the presence of Jesus. They scream out. But here the, the apostles scream out. They cry out, for they all saw Him. What does that mean? They all saw Him. So they are keeping the boat in the wind, keeping the boat heading into the waves, heading westward. Jesus is coming to them from eastward. So how do you row in a boat? You row facing backwards. The stern, it's called, right? So you row facing backwards and they're rowing here. And Jesus is walking from that direction. So imagine what this would have been like. Dark, misty, rainy, plus all the waves up and down, up the swells, down the swells. It's not like they had a good sight of vision. But as they maybe go up one swell and come down another, suddenly they start getting a glimpse of something. Something's on the water out there. And they go up another wave and down another wave and up another wave. And then the something's bigger. And they all see it because they're all facing the same direction. And they start talking to one another. Did you see that? There's something out there. It's the middle of the night. There's something out there. And it's getting closer. Up another wave, down another wave, up another wave, down another wave. And this thing... It's getting closer. We can't quite see where it is. Rainy, sea spray everywhere. And they're terrified. Does this call to mind another instance in which it's nighttime, the same disciples are on the same boat, on the same sea, and there's another storm, and there's the same Messiah and the same reaction. They're more afraid of him than they were of drowning. Once again, they're more afraid of him than they are the storm. Do you notice how consistently the disciples 
radically underestimate Jesus' power, compassion, and care. They're always underestimating. They're terrified. He's coming to them in what is up to this point the greatest demonstration of His deity. And He's coming to them and they're terrified. But immediately He spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Or literally, stop being afraid. What wonderful words those are to hear. Take courage, take heart. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Stop fearing. Those words are spoken about 12 times in the New Testament. All but once they come from Jesus' mouth. Fear not. Don't be afraid. It is I. But He says, take heart. It is I. None of our translations get that right. From King James onward. Because all of our translations say something to the effect, it is I. But that's not exactly what Jesus said. We are, I think, all familiar with the I am statements in John's Gospel. Everybody familiar with the I am statements? These seven statements in John's Gospel in which Jesus makes these profound declarations of Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the true vine. These seven glorious statements that Jesus makes. I am the bread. Now, as Jesus makes those statements, John has him making those statements in a particular grammatical fashion. In the Greek language, there's two ways to say I am. There's first of all, you could say ego. Now, when I hear ego, you probably think the same thing I'm thinking of. That's when I was a kid. Saturday morning cartoons, it was drilled into me. What? Lego Lego, my ego. All right. So you could say ego, like Lego my ego. Those two things have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But the word ego means I am. That's actually where we get our word ego. And what ego means is self-perception, how you perceive yourself to be. In the Greek, you could say ego, and that means I am. You could also say I me. That also means I am. All seven times, John has Jesus saying both. Ego, I me. Literally, like he just repeated himself. To translate those I am statements in John's Gospel To translate those literally, we would say, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. I am, I am the bread. I am, I am the true vine. You get it? It is a radical, extreme emphasis, a forceful emphasis. I am, I am. Now, this, of course, calls to mind Exodus chapter 3. Remember Exodus chapter 3, once again, the bush episode and What's your name? Who shall I say sent me? And we all are familiar with that where we read the words, I am that I am. And have you ever thought about that phrase, I am that I am? That is a notoriously difficult phrase to interpret or to translate. It's notoriously difficult to translate because it follows the same type of pattern. It's almost like literally saying, I am, I am. And so translators will say, I am that I am. 
In fact, if you were to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and you came to Exodus chapter 3, where God says, I am that I am, guess what you'll find? Ego, Amy. And here comes Jesus. I am that I am the bread. I am that I am the true vine. Guess what Jesus says to the, to the apostles? Fear not. Take courage. I am, I am. Literally, Jesus says to the disciples, take courage. Yahweh is here. Our New Testaments are full of instances in which Jesus unequivocally declares himself to be the Lord of all creation. I am that I am is here. The great I am is here. And so this is the greatest, the the, the final, should we say, manifestation, revelation, this, this great revealing of himself. He trods on the water. He says to the disciples, I am that I am is here. The great I am is here. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. 